This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 119. Today we continue our Christ and Culture discussion with a look at vocation, education, and fine arts. Christ the Center is listener-supported, and we thank everyone who helps to make this program possible. To read more about how you can contribute, please visit reformedforum.org slash donate. Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and this is episode number 119. Today we are continuing our Christ and Culture series, and this is our third installment. And our goal here, and the way we have structured this project, is to present you several different perspectives that represent different strands of Reformed thinking. So as we begin, let me remind you that the format of these episodes deviates a bit from our typical Christ the Center format. First and foremost, this is a debate, and so we ask that you listen intently and critically to each view, but we trust that you will benefit from it. We are still in round one of three separate rounds of recording. Rounds two and three will be opportunities for each participant to criticize the opposing views, This first round involves each participant answering a series of standard questions, simply to orient each view within the overall landscape. So today we will be presenting our round one sections on vocation, education, and fine arts. Our first participant is Bill Dennison. Dr. Dennison is Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at Covenant College, as well as Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology at Northwest Theological Seminary. Here, Dr. Dennison answers the question, what is the Christian's role in work? To keep it quite pointed, I just see, um, simply, I would point to Colossians 3.17, and that's doing everything to the glory of God. And, and I think in the name of Christ. Um, now, we can map that out. I'm not, ex- I'm not ecstatic about the present phenomenon over uh, the issue of calling Kaleo uh, being used in entering into that discussion with vocation. Um, I'm not sure that is the way how that term is to be understood. And so I look at... I look at uh, uh, vocation, again, under uh, the providential talents uh, that, the, uh, that the Lord provides uh, a person, uh, hopefully through the Spirit of Christ, a uh, person evaluates the talents which the Lord has given uh, them and then uh, moves on in, in view of Colossians 3.17, and does all things uh, in the name of Christ and for his glory. Um, For example, I could never be a violin player. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I could never be a computer programmer. Uh, Those are not areas in which I have uh, any type of expertise. So, but the Lord gives us people uh, in that regard. And then then the other thing, uh, the most important thing is, we must understand creation, uh, work and labor in terms of its creational mandates stand. 
and that is that the Lord, we follow that pattern, that the Lord labored and worked, and it is good. Labor is good. So whatever the vocation we are in, we are to view it as that which is good. And then it follows with the concept of rest. And um, and so we evaluate that in that regard. The interesting thing on that is that in, there is a kind of reversal in the New Testament once our Savior comes and performs his work. We now, in one sense, already enter into his rest. Um, and but not yet complete. So the pattern in the New Testament is we work now after the day of rest. Out, so we work out of our status of union with Christ in the heavenly places. And that puts a lot of responsibility upon us uh, with respect to gratitude to the Lord. Uh, and uh, so that gratitude of Christ, we work out of grace. We don't work out of our works. And we move, you see, even in terms of our vocation, we work out of the heavenly rest that we have in Christ, and we and uh, that's how we live and move and have our being during our vocation in the week, moving again towards the not yet, that is, the rest, uh, the, uh, that comes um, on, on, as we enter into the next week uh, in the Sabbath. So we always, so the pattern in the New Testament is rest and uh, then work and then moving back into rest so that we understand always our labor, that which is good, is that which comes out of grace. We never bring any trophy, even in terms of our vocation, uh, before the Lord and we always uh, understand ourselves as those who are moving to our inheritance in the Lord himself. The interesting thing in the Colossians 3.17 passage, if we use that as, as a kind of helpful uh, uh, application here, you move immediately into 3.18 and, uh, with respect to how we operate with the family, and also, if you wish, uh, the employee-employer uh, uh, analogy uh, at that time, servanthood and master, uh, that that imagery follows right there in all in all that we do, and so that's that's a um, that's a very very important aspect that we understand, and I think that's how we should understand the Second Thessalonians three ten passage about if anyone will not work, he should not eat. I don't think we, too often, you see, we get on one side of Christian groups advocating that in a capitalist mode, and then you get uh, liberals on the other side uh, who just hate that verse. When I lived in Grand Rapids uh, <laughs> uh, for 16 years, that verse, uh, if it ever was popped out, uh, in terms of the social-cultural context, uh, was looked at and viewed at as a terrible verse often by Calvinists, and uh, because they had put it in a in a um, capitalist kind of a context, no, that con the context there is again shaped by uh, by Paul in terms of that context. If you do go back at the verse, is looking at us in our view in terms of how we live in Christ. The issue is how are we living outside, how inside our union of Christ, 
with respect to inspect to all that we do, including our vocation. So, so we would be people who look as God looked upon His activity, and um, uh, as that which is good. Our second contributor is Dr. Daryl G. Hart. Dr. Hart teaches at Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania, as well as Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Here is Dr. Hart answering the question, what is the Christian's role in work? Uh, Man was created to work. Um, It was... uh, in some ways reaffirmed with with in the Naoic, Noahic covenant. Um, so, and we are image bearers of God. God worked, uh, so we work. I heard a great talk by R.C. Sproul at um, the PCRT many years ago, and the theme of it, I mean, the, the memorable phrase was, you got to work. I mean, he just kept saying, you got to work, in that inimitable way that R.C. speaks. Um and so I just think we're working creatures. We're called – so it's part of who we are, but then also it's the way that we serve God, and it's also the way we love our neighbor, um, both indirectly and directly. Um, I mean, I think we create all sorts of social capital even by just simply changing diapers and wiping up babies' chins and things like that because that means at least somebody else isn't having to do it. Um, I mean, in – so I won't go into that aside, but um, so I, I just think that um, work is part of God's providence, pro- God's providential care for his people. He ha- uses all sorts of secondary means to provide for his creation what he originally created. He, he also does things um, ex, ex nihilo, like creation and, and miracles, but in between those things, he uses a whole host of secondary means like the, the the various churning going on in my stomach right now, digesting my my uh, my lunch, um, and so when you put together your CD, you're doing a secondary cause that God is going to use and providentially care for His creation. Um, so that's another aspect of our work that it's part of God's providence, and He uses these things to care for His creation and also to bring in his kingdom. The goal is to glorify God and to love neighbor. Um, but how, how I glorify God in the way even, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to be cavalier about this, but how I glorify God in the way that I take out the garbage, the way that I write a chapter in a book, the way that I prepare a meal, uh, the way that I drive. I mean, you can come up with some, say, for driving, okay, do, do I glorify God by, by speeding? Probably not. But do I speed? Yes, I probably do. My wife would, tell, would phrase that answer differently. Um, but, okay, so aside from matters of state or, or federal law, those, as far as cooking or, or writing or taking out garbage or cleaning the bathtub— I'm just not sure how I do how there's a glorified God way to do that. I just should try to do it, and I think it has a lot to do with uh, 
the way that we approach our our whole lives as far as living it before the face of God and knowing that He's watching us and and knowing and sort of having a sense that we're trying to honor and serve Him and that we do it and starting our days with prayer, punctuating our days with prayer, asking for God's guidance and blessing throughout the day in what we do, um, but also not knowing exactly. And we can't always think about it because we, we so so often we act just intuitively. The way I, where I walk on the on the sidewalk, how I cross the street, or what, whatever. So we can't. I I just I don't want people to have to overthink things. I think overthinking can actually be counterproductive at times. But um, I, I do think the answer is to glorify God. But it gets really hard to to think that one through. And I wish somebody would write about this actually. But um, someone on the order of like a Leon Cass, who isn't a Christian, unfortunately, but. Uh, a very thoughtful Jewish ethicist, writer, physician, um, and he's written very helpfully about the body and eating, and he's written very, very uh, wonderfully even about some of the stories in Genesis and what they mean. So it would be interesting to think about the image, our image-bearing capacity and the way we live in this created order as glorifying God. Um, anyway, I think someone could go a long way with that. Here is our third participant, Doug Wilson. Mr. Wilson is pastor at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, and faculty member at New St. Andrews College. Here, Mr. Wilson answers the question, what is the Christian's role in work? One of the most helpful books I've read on that is Gene, Gene Vieth's book, uh, God at Work, in which he uh, he goes through reviews and uh, re, restates the historic Protestant view of vocation. So um, we need to banish the idea that Christians who are in the ministry or Christians who are youth pastors or Christians who are missionaries are full-time Christian workers, and that everybody else is just sort of the tither, you know, the tithers (laughs) to make it go. Um, For the Reformers, all lawful work was full-time Christian work. So if a person is manufacturing widgets, if he's a farmer, if he's baking bread, if he's, uh, if she's a housewife changing diapers, um, the Christian's role in work, as I see it, is to be Christ to the customer, to be Christ, to be God's provision to the person that you're serving um, in this exchange, whatever it is, in this business exchange, uh, vocational exchange, and to receive from Christ, the vocational labors of others. So the macro goal is to be Christ-like and to do live biblically and that sort of thing. But to bring it um, down to a more uh, mundane uh, level, uh, I think a, a person who's called to a particular vocation, whether it's uh, painting or law or writing or you know filmmaking or whatever the vocation is, um, it the first duty is to um, work hard and feed your family to so you're not worse than an infidel to, you know to to work diligent with your diligently with your hands as paul says um, and keep your head down and don't make trouble for others just supply you know uh, meet your basic obligations uh, that would be number one 
And then number two, I would say in, in Proverbs it says, do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. And I believe that the the goal of a a Christian vocational laborer ought to be in the first place to meet your basic basic obligations, in the second place to be the to be the absolute best you can be given what God gave you to work with. And now our fourth participant, Nelson Klosterman. Dr. Klosterman teaches at Mid-America Reformed Seminary, and as with the other participants here, he answers the question, what is the Christian's role in work? As a Christian, as somebody who's a disciple of Jesus Christ, um, they seek in their work, uh, they seek both um, faithfulness and excellence faithfulness to their master, who it happens not to be their boss, but their master happens to be the Lord, and they work uh, as unto him. They are not men-pleasers. They work as unto him. They're faithful to him and to his his calling. And then they're also uh, excellent, skilled. The, the, the relationship between these two is that faithfulness will sometimes require of a Christian at his work uh, certain certain kinds of sacrifices that he might need to make for the sake of his family, for example, for the sake of the Lord's Day, for example, uh, for the sake of his principles. And um, uh, the Christian's role in work, then, is to work in such a way that um, his faithfulness not only becomes noticed and observable, but that it has a bearing, then, on the way he does his job. With regard to excellence, um, here is where stewardship comes in. He has gifts, or she has abilities that have been given, endowed, donated by the Creator, and there's a stewardship element about which there will be an accounting given one day. And so those are the two dimensions of work that I think are are come to bear on the relationship of Christianity and work. What would you see, then, as the goal in Christian's vocation? Um, well, I guess both of those then. In other words, one's job, one's profession and career then become the field of one's faithfulness in this world. And that faithfulness obtains um, form. It obtains incarnation, if you will, enfleshment in the skills and in the uh, in the practices of one's craft or trade. So the goal, again, is, is faithful stewardship. Moving on now to education, we ask Bill Dennison, whose responsibility is it to educate children? classic passage, of course, uh, often used and, and uh, should we say, really meditated upon, uh, and maybe there's others that others think of, but I think often with all my years, <laughs> over 30 years as a professional educator of Deuteronomy 6, um, not 4 through 9, the, that passage. Um, but here is my 
might maybe a slightly different take that some people may have on that passage because many people believe that that passage empowers Christian uh, education to be in the hands of the parents. They are the ones who are responsible. I'm not convinced of that. I think the context there is the covenant people of God. And therefore, uh, the responsibility of, of, of uh, Christian education or education is sort of given to the covenant community. I think, I think if I, I understand Israel correctly, that was their understanding. And if I understand uh, the, the Christian school movement, uh, especially in the Dutch Calvinist tradition, uh, I, that is their understanding as well in many ways, uh, even though I do believe that Christian education arose in a kind of social-political context in the 19th century that uh, isn't as formulated covenantally, uh, theologically, uh, it isn't articulated theologically in a covenant way as much as I would like it to have been uh, in terms of the research that I have done. Uh, but nevertheless, that's the idea behind their, their position. Uh, however, I must also say that for them, uh, at least the schools I was associated in the uh, in Christian education, in the Dutch tradition, uh, they looked at it as as a parent's responsibility. The second thing I would say is that there should be, in some ways, a um, a uh, ecclesiastical oversight in the relationship to the Christian school in some way. However, that is uh, set up. Um, so that's that's. Uh, so that's my uh, take on that in terms of that verse. I think it's the, it is a corporate covenantal context and therefore are responsible uh, with respect to education. Now, given what you've just said, um, is there a preferred or perhaps even a mandated form of education for Christians? Yeah, it, it'd be difficult to point out, you know, what we're saying here about preferred or mandated and maybe the distinctions that might be might be held to. But let me at least say this, is that uh, I would I would argue that there is a um, uh, there is a I would I would say this, that um, we have before us um, a in Scripture um that we are to interpret interpret the world in relationship to what has been given to us by God and uh and so education education is an interpretation of what is given by by God which is himself the world and humanity uh, I think education uh, is to be preferred in a faith learning situation. It's richer, it's more uh, uh, mature with respect to education, and I have a tendency to lean towards the mandated side of a of, of that it sh- that it is to be done by uh, in the covenant context. Um, and um, however, I need to make. Sh- but I want to be careful with that anymore because we have a different, <laughs> right now we have quite a different cultural situation 
um, uh, the institution I'm a part of, if you have to pay out of pocket, if you would pay everything out of pocket, can run you over thirty thousand dollars. And so you have we had a lot of different situations now than just talking about how we used to how it used to be and drawing any analogy to Israel. But nevertheless, we do have a covenant context um, in, in which the wisdom of Christ takes preference, I think, that we must interpret everything through Jesus Christ. I like to talk about the covenant in respect to the creation of Adam, that a man is created by the covenant God, Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord, in 2-7 of Genesis, in which... There is no history of human, there's no human existence outside, uh, uh, outside of God coming into, uh, covenanting himself unto us. And then I like to talk about when we get in the context of understand our knowledge, our understanding and interpretation must begin and end with the triune God. And I like to call this, when I talk about Christian education and lecture about it, I call this the covenantal circle on the basis of Romans 11.36. All things must be interpreted or known or understood uh, from, through, and to uh, God. And I understand that implicitly to the, of the triune God of the Bible. In that regard, it's very important. Uh, you know, a lot of people, matter of fact, my biggest complaint about about education uh, in the Christian context, whether it is that most people can go from, all things come from God. Very few have the ability to analyze and integrate the through, understanding every subject discipline through the, uh, the God of the Bible, and returning that subject to him. And that's why I'm very big on this in this passage in Romans 11:36, as a as a context in which we must uh, uh, prefer and move into in terms of Christian uh, of our understanding. I would say that that in that context, no matter where we are, that's a mandate that comes upon us. And then, last of all, in terms of the disciplines. I would say that we must, uh, up, Christ upholds all things by the word of his power of that passage that I absolutely love and try to apply throughout the scheme of that, of the from through to, uh, and from Hebrews 1 3. So um, that's, that's, a, that's sort of the direction I would, uh, I would uh, take. I would make a distinction between education and vocation. Uh, as, the co- as, as the covenant sort of tells us that we are to be cut off, separate, set apart, and distinct with respect to our knowledge, understanding, interpretation, we now have the liberty uh, uh, to go into the creation, into the world itself as a vocation. But that needs to be foundational, in my judgment. We need to be found needs to be foundational. That, uh, that we have that type of understanding, uh, um, interpretation, and knowledge of all things, as, uh, of the things that we can learn as we go into the world. Mm-hmm. 
Here is Daryl Hart on the subject of education. It is the responsibility of parents. I don't think there'd be any um, disagreement about that on any of the different positions on Christ and culture. Um, even if if there is a is a, if there is a tension between Kuyperians or Neo Calvinists and two kingdom people, even this is one I think that we would all be agreed on that it's a responsibility of parents. Because I do think the two kingdom view is very compatible with the idea of sphere sovereignty taught by Kuiper. And the reason why Dutch Reformed churches have not had parochial schools, as I understand it, is because they believe parochial schools is, is, a, is an agency of the parish or of the church. And Christian Reformed, for instance, have always said that education is a responsibility of parents. So they've set up day schools where parents are on the boards of the day schools, and it's this, this is an operation separate, separate from the local church. Um, and in fact, Dort College used to give Calvin College lots of um, nudging, good-natured and sometimes not so, because they thought they were more Kuyperian than Calvin, because Calvin is a denominational college, and therefore it's an agency of the church, of the Christian Reformed Church, whereas Dort was originally, I'm not sure if it still is, Dort was originally set up to be a family-run educational enterprise. And even in the history of the OPC, when there was when there was debates about whether to make Westminster a denominational seminary in the 1940s, almost everyone, no matter what their position, no, no matter what their background, from the Scott Murray to the Dutch R.B. Kuyper to the American Robert Marsden, they all appealed to sphere sovereignty and ultimately said even seminary education falls under the family more than the church, which I would like to rethink in some ways. But um, So in that sense, I think it's a responsibility of the family, but that means then the family can hire someone so they can contract with a school to a Christian school to send their children there. They can contract with a, um, a tutor in the home to come in, and, or parents themselves can actually school their children at home. I also think they can. It's okay for them to send their children to public schools. I, I think I don't recommend it necessarily. Thankfully, well, thankfully my wife and I have hadn't, haven't had to make, a, make that decision because we don't have children. And living in the city in Philadelphia and having watched series like The Wire, I, I don't have great confidence in city schools. So I can understand why people would opt for private schools. Um, but I am a product of public education in the suburbs, and it, I know things have changed. Um, and I know there's a lot of social engineering that goes on there, but I think that children can still receive a decent education in some of those public schools as long as their parents are really working through issues with them in the home and as long as their parents are also catechizing them and the church is catechizing them. I think it's, it's, it's a possible arrangement. It may not be the best, but it's possible. On the flip side, I've seen instances in Christian Reform culture where parents think that they've simply done their duty by turning their kids over to the Christ, local Christian school and also to the Sunday school teachers who will teach the catechism, and the parents themselves aren't engaged in the education, whether religious or secular, of their children because they've handed, handed them over to the appropriate agencies. And all sorts of educational literature is out there to show that children 
don't get the faith unless their parents pat intentionally pass it on, and particularly the father. If the father is engaged in passing on the faith, talking about the faith, praying in the home, there's a much greater chance that children are going to, the faith is going to take with, with the children. I mean, this is even true for mainline churches, uh, some studies have shown. So I think parents need to be engaged no matter where they send their children to school, or obviously you would think they'd be pretty engaged if they're homeschooling. Um, but Parents need to be engaged. I think it's just part of the way we're constituted. Here is Doug Wilson. Well, I, I believe that the God-given governments that we have, um, the, the Kuyperian spheres, if you will, um, and I should mention, you know, Kuyper is another influential uh, uh, theologian that I would roughly identify with. I'm, I'm a Kuyperian in in my view of these things. Um, if you if you take the three basic governments, the church government, civil government, and family government, um, I believe that. The, that the civil government is the ministry of justice, um, the church government is the ministry of grace, and family government is the ministry of health, education, and welfare. And so the responsibility, the basic responsibility for the education of children lies with the family. And I, But I don't believe that those three governments are sealed off in watertight containers separated from each other. So I believe the other two governments, civil government and uh, church government have a responsibility to encourage um, encourage parents and families as they undertake that good work. Mm. Is there a preferred or perhaps even a mandated form of education for Christians? Yes, I, I believe that Christian education is mandated for Christians. Now, um, so I don't I don't accept the idea that neutrality in education is possible. A lot of people view your religious faith commitments as sort of a condiment that you can add to the basic stuff of knowledge that you pick in a neutral, you know, you you go to the neutral school and you pick up the basic cold porridge of knowledge, and then you take it home and you can heat it or flavor it or, or spice it up to suit you. So, you know, the Muslim can take it home and make it into a Muslim thing and the Hindu into a Hindu thing and the atheist into an atheist thing and the Christian into a Christian thing. I don't, I don't believe that that's true. I believe that education is one of the most profoundly re- religious things that we do, and the Lordship of Christ has to be explicitly owned in it throughout the process for Christians. Now, I think that there are many different delivery systems of Christian education. That, you know, it could be homeschooling or co-ops or, or private Christian schools. So I'm, I'm not wanting to be a stickler that way. But I do believe that Christian education is a mandate for Christian parents. And now, Dr. Nelson Klosterman answers the question, whose responsibility is it to educate children? It depends on what area that you are talking about. For example, if I were to say to you in, in a first blush, simple answer, oh, it's parents, it's the parents' responsibility. 
what do we do then with the church? It's not the church's responsibility to catechize as well, and I'm I'm aware of some churches where parents are saying to elders, uh uh uh, uh we're gonna we're gonna catechize our kids. And I demur from that position. I demur. I don't think it's the parents' responsibility. Though it's they share it. I'm not I'm not exempting them from any co responsibility. But when I say it depends, by that I mean it depends on the sphere or the area. In the church, it's the office bearers, the church leadership, pastor, elders, charged to educate the children. And in the home, it's the parents that are charged to educate the children. And if parents um, uh, delegate that responsibility to teachers in the classroom, then my philosophy, my understanding is that they have to grant authority commensurate with responsibility. And if they have if they have uh, delegated responsibility to teachers in the classroom, they have to allow teachers in the classroom to do their work, not second-guessing them, not looking over their shoulder, not dictating everything, and so forth. Now, um, so uh, it's largely in the home where parents exercise that responsibility, and in the church, it's the church leadership. Great. Is there a preferred or perhaps even a mandated form of education for Christians? Well, yes. The preferred form of education, I believe, that the Bible requires is one which is consistent with and saturated with a biblical worldview. Mm. And I believe the Bible is um, is unequivocal. The Bible is absolutely unambiguous and clear that we are to bring up children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Now, I know that in Ephesians 6 is addressed to parents. Um, I, I think that, by extension, anyone, then, who educates our children ought to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we had better, as parents, see to it that our minister and elders are doing that with regard to their province of education. I believe that if we send our children to a what I call a day school, that we have to ensure that their teachers are teaching our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. In other words, to send, uh, I mean, to, to submit and subject our children eight hours a day to the kind of education that blasphemes the Lord, contradicts His Word, um, seems to me inconsonant, inconsistent with Ephesians 6. I do want to say a word about availability and possibility here. Calvinists are nothing if they're not realists. And uh, there there do exist areas where uh, this kind of education, uh, what some people call Christian education, I have no problem with the term, is an ideal. It's an ideal to be struggled or, or, or worked for, and it's not quite yet real. So I want to be patient. I want to be pastoral where where that exists. And our third subject today is the subject of fine arts. Here is Bill Dennison explaining how the Christians should approach the fine arts. Again, I would start with uh, the Colossians 1, a 317 passage. So the artist, as he's involved there, does all things again under, under Christ and, um, and in the name of Christ and to the glory of Christ. 
Now, um, and I do believe, and because of the controversy that comes here, it almost it's almost sort of trivial to talk about this because it should be understood uh, for granted in terms of our entire uh, reformed world and life view. But because of the controversy that can start here, again, I think I have to underline the fact of Christian liberty, and also just as the confession says that a polit- that a Christian can be a politician. Uh, so, I think under Christian liberty, a Christian could definitely be involved in fine arts. My daughters were very, very uh, accomplished ballerinas as they grew up, and so we encourage that in our own situation, and we try to encourage that within the context of our own Reformed world and life view. So, I think there is, there is the, the freedom of, of, of liberty there's conscience with respect to the fine arts. However, because of some of the delicacies that get into the discussion at this point, yes, once again, we have clear outlines that, that which would pertain to any aspect of our involvement in anything that we are in, in our lives, and that is we must do it under a consistent, we do it out of a consistent, implicit, true faith always faithful to God's Word, always evaluating the will of God with respect to our involvement there, with respect to the Word of God, and and we serve the Lord in that realm like we should in any type of area of life, in holiness and in righteousness. So, uh, yes, the the artist has a, a... can positively express... Uh, themselves in terms of their task, uh, they can uh, and they and they can provide their own expression, uh, uh, commentary and interpretation of God and the creation and humanity. And then I would also say, in a negative sense, and a negative possibly this would be understood in a negative sense, it could be a positive understanding as well, is that the, the artist has the freedom to expose the alienation of the lost or the world and, and its struggles uh, uh, with respect to God, creation, and the world. The artist often gives us great expressions of that. Uh, but, the, uh, but the artist at the same time must guard themselves in the sense that they do not have the liberty to be destructive, to destructive in their area to the external peace and order of Christ's church. So the artist should never see, as none of us should see in any area that we express ourselves, should never see ourselves autonomously outside uh, the truth of Scripture and God's will, and also outside of Christ's Church. And uh, that is very, very important. And then also a good guide in all of this uh, for all of us to be conscious of and aware of as we proceed uh, again, in any area, but it seems to be very sensitive to the consciousness of the Christian community uh, with respect to the arts, is that we must have uh, care of the weaker brother. And, uh, and uh, that's, that is very, very important in terms of how we express ourselves, and that sensitivity uh, must be there as well. Uh, given that, is there a distinctively Christian music or painting or sculpture? I think, you know, I, I hold to this to the position. The Christian has the freedom to express themselves 
with res- uh, in terms of an exposition, um, um, with their own epistemological self-consciousness towards Christ to express themselves in their task. And I would believe that if the Christian is doing that, whatever they are producing is a distinctively Christian understanding. I'll give you an example of that. I tell my students at Covenant College, we have what is called a senior integration project. It's called SIP, S-I-P. And uh, it's like a mini thesis. The best the best one, now I know this is more in terms of an analysis, but this possibly uh, the listener can still apply this in terms of the formation of their task. The best SIP I've ever received in my department uh, that I've worked with never quoted a scripture verse and never mentioned the name God all the way through it. And the reason was, and the SIP was on an analysis of the first film of The Matrix. And the reason, the reason from the very first paragraph, I knew that this analysis was from one who was reformed in their Christian consciousness and was being shaped by biblical by a biblical consciousness. That was Christian. That was reformed. And uh, in the whole paper, just was overflowing with what I would call as a transcendental analysis from a from a uh, reform perspective, uh, uh, a understanding of. The only way this student could be analyzing the matrix the way they did it was if they had the consciousness of Scripture and the Reformed Confessions already in their heart. Here is Daryl Hart on the subject of the fine arts. I would start... Arguably, I'd start with 1 Corinthians 8 and the sort of Christian liberty that Paul affirms there regarding meat offered to idols and that Christians may um, may eat that meat, um, but he's also wanting to be um, – wanting Christians, the stronger Christians, to be aware of weaker Christians and the problems of conscience. Um, and Paul, I think he also talks about this in Romans 14 – um, and uh, John Murray wrote a wonderful article about this. It's somewhere in his collected works, and I can't remember if it's a, a question of – I think it's more about liberty of conscience than it is about culture. But it seems to me that liberty of conscience really is the place to start and that not all Christians are on the same page when it comes to what they can handle um, and and – Christians as as a body or as members of a body need to be mindful of that. Um, so that that's that's where I, I that's where I started. Maybe that's kind of pragmatic. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm probably. I mean, I was a film studies major. Ironically, after growing up in a home where where film going to movies was prohibited, and so I had to sneak out to see movies, and 
I'm hoping my parents won't hear this this interview, although I don't think that would shock them at this point. But I mean, I, I was reared in kind of a fundamentalist home um, where mov- movies along with cards and dancing and smoking and other things were taboo. Um, and so I kind of rebelled, rejected some of that, um, can see the wisdom of some of it as, some of it as well. But um, I love film. I love um, – and I always have, but I also love literature. I, I dabble in liking painting and art. Um, that, that's not a sort of art. Um, know a lot – well, I know some about music, having grown up in a musical home. Um, and, and so I can't say that I live and breathe the arts, but I'm, I'm kind of artsy. Um, but I, I just I – don't, I don't think that there's um, – that there's a there's a one christian one size approach to this as a christian and i th- and i also get a little worried sometimes if within a congregation we have a book group um that where people read n- novels for instance that not all everyone in the church could handle um because then you kind of set up a little kind of mini click of um people whose consciences are are either really strong or or um would or uh, what's the other word i'm trying to f- but so i i just think that the arts are potentially divisive and reveal differences among christians not just in terms of aesthetics or taste but in terms of what consciences will bear because there's oftentimes a lot of material in the art um that christians can find objectionable um but on the other side i mean i think it's part of god's i mean it, it reflects our again our our image bearing uh character um it's part of god's good creation that he's given us these things i think that um seminarians who've studied have liberal arts backgrounds or have studied in the arts can be very good in in the way they read, the way they think about things, or sensitive, sensitivity to people. I do think that a really good story can um, uh, can show us something about ourselves or about other people that we wouldn't have seen before, and that sometimes we don't even see from reading scripture because that's not necessarily the nature of what scripture is trying to to teach us. So I I encourage the arts in those ways, but again, I. I I I wouldn't be on a crusade to say that we have to have more congregations reading novels because, um, I I mean I think what God has given us in His Word and what He's given us with the Word and Sacrament preached and and administered each week is 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 enough for Christians to get by and to be a better Christian you don't have to read more novels. Mm. So what would the Christian artists task be if 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 there was a Christian who was an artist producing art? Uh, what would their task or goal or guiding principle, anything, how would they approach that? Uh, it, generally speaking, it would be to go back to uh, the idea of vocation and work and glorifying God and trying to ser- serve God in that, in that way. Um, I, um, I, I do think as much as I have often disagreed with uh, people, with Kuyperians, um, Nick Waldersdorf and uh, 
Al Plantinga sort of got their start, I think, in the philosophical profession by writing about aesthetics. And and I have benefited from at least Walterstorff's writing in there. I haven't read as much by Plantinga. Uh, and, and he takes uh, – Plantinga has been – excuse me, Walterstorff. I'm, I'm sure Plantinga has been as well. But Walterstorff has been very critical of a kind of romantic aesthetic that kind of looks at art as this – moment of inspiration or this existential crisis and he looked Waldersdorf as I understood it at least at one time argued for a more um, functional view of art that art as far as arts and crafts so a plate has a certain art and you can use it to eat food on you can also use it to decorate a home I mean so and and I do wonder if that is in some ways more compatible with Christian's understanding of the world, the way it works, and God's providence, and secondary means, and things like that, instead of just creating art to be put in museums and, and marveled at, which I think many of us can appreciate, there's also a, a common, ordinary aspect to artistic endeavor. And if I were to be an artist, I think I'm drawn more to that that way of thinking about art as far as useful things that people can put in their homes, a f- sort of merging of form and function. Um, but I don't know that that's necessarily the Christian or the Reformed view. Yeah. That's what I was in my next question. Yeah. Would, be a, would you see a distinctively <clears throat> Christian music or painting or sculpture, right. anything like that? Well, I would see distinctively <clears throat> Christian music in the sense that we do need music in our in our worship services. And, um, and so, I mean, the, the treasure trove of, of wonderful choral music that the English church has given to the rest of the church, um, both in song, I mean, both in, in, in text and in, in tune, um, is, is truly amazing. And, and Ray Fon Williams is one of my favorite composers in, in the sense that he's written so many beautiful hymn tunes and, and has done settings of those, even though he himself was not a believer, far from it, I think. Um, so the church does need art in that way. Um, and so in that sense, there, there is this history of sacred music. Um, now, we, we don't need to get into special music versus congregational singing and all that, but I still think that there is, there is clearly room in the church for Christian musicians. Um, then when it comes to the other things, I don't – I mean, I think there will be religious themes or Christian themes in, in art, and I think – the way an artist will handle those themes or even just handling basic human themes in a kind of whether man's fallen or not, whether man, whether there's hope or not. I mean, there, there, there could be Christian approaches to these things. But um, again, some of, I, I just think that the insights that, that so often come in art from unbelievers makes me very hesitant to, to um, favor Christian expressions as opposed to to non-Christian ones. And now Doug Wilson on the fine arts. Christian should approach the arts with with a brush in his teeth and a gleam in his eye. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, basically, it's very... Uh, clear that, uh, and if I could appeal to um, 
uh, a phrase that Francis Schaeffer used, uh, the mannishness of man. Um, when man creates, when, when men create beautiful things, lovely things, whether they're paintings or sculpture or, sculpture or, or um, poetry or whatever, they are, I, I believe, in a very wonderful way uh, portraying or declaring something of the image of God. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien described the, the process of sub-creation as an imitative um, reflection of what God did when he made the world. And so when a Christian, whatever venue, whatever area that a Christian artist is called to perform in, I believe that he should be wanting to model the creative energy of God in a microcosm so that people can see it and glorify God. Hmm. Given that, um, would you see that there would be, a, a, well, I'll ask you, is there such thing as a distinctively Christian music or painting or sculpture, any, any of those sorts? Uh, yes, I would say so. Uh, I, I believe that um, that's not to say that, that uh, Christian art is altogether lovely and that um, secular art has to be um, ugly as opposed to the loveliness of Christian art. But I do believe that there is, uh, because you've got issues of common grace and all these other things getting into it, and sometimes you've got Christians sort of sinning against greater light and producing terrible schlock, and <laughs> and the non-believers, by, by a maximum use of God's common grace, producing things that are altogether lovely. Mm. So, so it's not a simplistic thing. Nevertheless, I believe that the gospel... If, if, you, if you don't measure it in 10-minute increments, if you don't measure it in six-month increments, if you look at what the gospel does in societies in 500-year increments, let's say, um, and you say, okay, where does the, uh, what happens to the arts wherever the gospel goes? Well, I think that that's a pretty easy question to answer. You get symphonies and cantatas and Gothic cathedrals, and you, know, you, get, you get glorious... Um, glorious uh, responses to God's goodness. In concluding our discussion today, Dr. Nelson Klosterman on the fine arts. Well, my my simple and and somewhat tongue-in-cheek answer to the first question, how should a Christian approach the uh, the fine arts, is intelligently... (laughs) Which means that we, we um, as a Christian community, which is not the same as the church, by the way, the institutional church, but as a Christian community, we need to be educated and to educate each other on the nature of the arts, the function of the arts, etc. Um, whether it be music, whether it be painting, photography, um, I, I find that, that um, for myself, I um, can evaluate, I can appreciate, I can enjoy the fine arts. The more I am informed about them, how they work, and what makes for good as opposed to mediocre art. So I think there's a great uh, opportunity for education. Would you see the, how should I put this, is there a distinctively Christian music or painting or sculpture? Can we look at these different disciplines and say there would be a distinctively Christian type of that? To the, well, um, my, my view of this is that all art is interpretation. All art is a matter of exegesis. That is, the artist is exegeting reality, okay? 
whether it be music or painting or literature. And if you, add, I can I can reword your question to 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 be this: Is there a distinctively Christian exegesis of reality in the form of painting, of uh, music, and of literature? My answer is yes. Now that doesn't mean that all paintings have a cross, or <laughs> don't, <laughs> or that all, or that all literature has a conversion story. Um, no, um, it, ha- it in my judgment, uh, what makes art Christian is its fidelity in exegeting reality, its fidelity to the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview about sin, creation, sin, uh, redemption, and consummation. Thank you for listening to this installment of our Christ and Culture discussion on Christ the Center. Next week we will be dealing with theological undercurrents, talking about natural law and common grace and even eschatology. If you'd like to hear more from us, please visit reformedforum.org. There you can find more information and even a place to comment and interact with other listeners on this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.